welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm here back in the studio recording because I had to come in for patient care, and in between patient care... I have nowhere else to sit other than Plenary Session Studios, so I'm broadcasting from the studio where we have crystal clear audio setup. It's nice to be back. First up, I'm going to give you some scattered thoughts in the time of COVID, COVID-19, some of the things that uh, have caught my eye. And as I promised on Twitter, a little bit discussion of the provocative article and now a couple of videos by John Yonides on the topic. And then... We're going to have a classical hematology chat. There's no time like the present to enjoy a classic hematology chat banter. You won't want to miss this. So stay tuned for this week's plenary session. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on plenary session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. All right, so let's start with some thoughts. Um, there are so many things to talk about, and um, where to begin? Well, first, I've done a couple of podcast episodes where I talked to an infectious disease doctor and I talked to um, an ICU doctor. And uh, those are, I think, uh, spaces where we have a clear sense of, of what's going on and, and what we're dealing with. And uh, I think the discussion with Ben Singer was excellent. And one of the things that I think has emerged out of all this is the question of under what circumstances um, is it permissible to try off-label drugs? And I think both Dr. Singer and I felt that uh, it makes a whole lot more sense to test them and make sure they work. And in the news over the last week and a half, we've had more hydroxychloroquine nonsense promulgated by this French scientist or researcher or physician or something of the sort. I don't know exactly what he is because he has many statements that are bizarre and incoherent where he said it's a violation of the Hippocratic Oath not to give people hydroxychloroquine. Well, that's not the case. It's probably more of a violation if you give it to say, I don't know, 500, 1,000 people and uh, you don't do a controlled study. Uh, Nearly all of the data that he has provided is uh, utterly useless. Um, It's just squandering um, the time and effort of patients uh, to provide no useful information. He has had enough patients that he has given this to. He could have run a randomized trial by now. Uh, He doesn't appear to understand why those are necessary, which is a deficiency, I think, in medical education um, and a deficiency that this gentleman has. Um, His data on viral uh, swab and viral levels and viral shedding is – is useless because he's censoring patients when they go to the ICU or die. Uh, So the endpoint can only be ascertained in people who happen to live, uh, which is a major selection bias for the endpoint. Moreover, that's not actually discussed is that endpoint, whether or not has to do with 
you recovering from the illness or actually transmitting it less, uh, whether or not it has to do with how the person is administering the swab in the nose. Uh, nobody knows what to do with that endpoint. It's not really been validated. It's never been tested. It's never been tried. You don't need to invent new endpoints in this moment. You have a condition with high short-term lethality. Uh, you can first do randomized trials in severely ill patients powered for lethality. That's all you need to do. Uh, the only good YouTube video I've seen in the last few weeks is by Darren Daly, who's a statistician in the in Ireland, uh, which is on why do we need randomized trials? And it's a very simple explanation uh, using a um, cartoon figure and asking whether or not a cartoon figure taking a drug resulted in the cartoon figure doing better or worse. And Darren shows very clearly when some people get better, perhaps even most people, and some people don't get better, uh, that merely pooling a bunch of people and seeing what fraction got better, it's not really telling you whether or not the treatment is doing the heavy lifting or the fact that you have selected those people in such a way they happen to have that rate of getting better. You don't know unless you do a randomized trial. So that was a very good video that I will uh, show people um, uh, rather than yell at them because I don't know, because it's very frustrating because uh, you think that if you want to participate in the discussion of what medicines should be used in critically ill people, you would have that understanding. Along those veins, I saw a venture capitalist who's made a success, a fortune from betting on, I don't know, companies that other people didn't bet on. Good for this person. I'm quite envious of this person. I should have done that with my life. It would have been a lot more rewarding. But um, this person thinks that you don't need randomized trials for things in medicine. He cites some uh, popular trade book about immunotherapy and some other rubbish books as to why that's the case. And again, I just have to clarify that when you have a group of people that you can identify and point to very readily, um, such as people with documented uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, and you think you have something that makes them better off, and it is not, in fact, a light switch. It's not like um, you had uh, uh, five people with severe Alzheimer's. You give them a pill, and they suddenly come out of a fog that they have been imprisoned in for the last few years. Uh, such a pill, a true parachute, a light switch moment, uh, there would be nobody asking for a randomized trial. Instead, the drugs we do have generally have modest to marginal effect sizes. They may improve the probability of recovery from, let's say, you know, 50% to 60% or 60% to 70%. That 10% increase would be great if it were real. But when you're talking about a magnitude increase like that on the order of 10%, when maybe half of people, two-thirds of people, three-quarters of people are going to recover generally, um, you're not going to be able to tell that from an uncontrolled study. You're not going to be able to tell that from just your gut feeling. You're not going to be able to tell that from uh, just observing 10 people. That's the kind of thing you need a randomized study because you want to separate your hope, your hype, even subconscious skewing of the results by picking and choosing in whom to deploy your intervention from the value of the intervention itself. And that is a principle that's been known for decades and decades in medicine that people like me have tried to articulate over and over to people like this um, that still is, you know, uh, beating on a brick wall, still not resonating. And this person's point is that, well, I wouldn't have been able to make all this money if I wasn't right. And I think that's a fallacy that uh, people suffer from, which is that um, merely because you yourself were successful in a finite set of uh, dice rolls in your life does not necessarily mean that you know everything about everything. Okay, so we have to admit that. So part of the reason I've spent so much of my time focusing on the medical side of uh, SARS-CoV-2 is that that's what... I'm an expert in. That's what I've trained in, and that's what I know well, and that's what I understand the principles well, and that's what I'm comfortable talking about. Um, 
Now you get into the other side of SARS-CoV-2, which is the really tough side, which is the public policy decisions, the public health decisions. Um, and I think, um, you know, I did allude to this fact that, you know, people who say it's not tough, uh, they are really probably oversimplifying things and they don't really have a sense of, of making, I think, policy decisions with lots of ramifications that you're not going to see all of them immediately. Um, I'm going to talk about the experts who talk about these things. But first, I want to make a, a little plug. I think it was about the end of the month in January where we were in a moment where a lot of the same experts I hear now on TV talking about how SARS-2 COVID is um, so bad and we need to shut down for six months or a year uh, or three months or something like that. Um, the same experts were the ones in January who were on TV saying, um, you know, we got to keep in mind the flu kills 10 times as many people or 20 times as many people, 100 times as many people. They kept saying that the flu, the flu, the flu. Uh, well, now they've changed their tune, obviously, obviously. Um, at the end of January, I uh, had an inkling uh, that, uh, you know, they probably shouldn't be so flippant in comparing this to the flu. And I tweeted a video by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And this was about fat tail probability. And um, I'm going to do my best job to summarize what I think his uh, thinking on this topic is. And I think it's actually, you know, quite ingenious. So what is Taleb's point of view? Taleb's point of view is that it is always wrong to compare um, extremely volatile events to extremely regimented events. What does he mean? Um, you know, you might see a statistic that um, even though um, a bunch of people died on 9-11, um, we st more people die from being struck by lightning or falling off a ladder or, you know, some other sort of common um, cause of death. And in fact, there have been a number of very famous thinkers. He always points to Steven Pinker who makes this sort of comparison and he always lambasts Steven Pinker. Um, and I think his point is this, which is that, yeah, there's so many people who die each year from falling off a ladder. Um, and how many people died in 1997? I don't know the answer, so I'm just gonna make up some numbers. Let's say it's like, you know, 10 per 100,000. How many people in 1998, 11, 12, 8, 15, 20, 6? Like that kind, of, that kind of range. And Taleb's point is that when you talk about something like death from falling off a ladder, in the absence of any new occupation where people are on ladders a whole hell of a lot more than they are now, that's going to be more or less the same, deaths falling off ladder. It's sort of a, um, a, it's a probability distribution centered on what the average number of deaths from falling off a ladder is um, with sort of very um, thin tails. The probability of extreme years, high years, low years, very unlikely to be the case. Okay, so th that, that, those kind of probabilities can be compared against each other, heart disease against cancer, cancer against falling off ladders, and we can have a sense of what's worse or better. Then he brings up the example of terrorism, 9-11, uh, suicide bombers, um, SARS-CoV-2 or pandemic illnesses. And his point here is that if you look at the history, there might be the average number of people who die from pandemic illnesses might be, I don't know, two per year or one per year. Um, but his point is that for some things, for some events, you don't care so much on the average risk. What you really need to think about is the tail risk. In other words, yes, most years may be unlikely to be very bad, but there's a much higher chance that some years could be cataclysmically bad. And he uses the terrorism example where he says that, look, yes, more people die from, I don't know, say falling off ladders or being 
hit by lightning than uh, from terrorism on the United States soil. Um, he's like, that might be true, uh, but uh, that might not stay true. And the probability that that could deviate in any one year or another year um, is tremendous. And if somebody in the wrong situation got their hands on something that they shouldn't and did something very bad, you could see that flip in a moment. And so there's a fat tail probability. There's a much higher chance that in any one year or the other that there's going to be an extreme number of people who pass away from this horrible thing. And what does he think the response is? So his response is that you shouldn't be so flippant in comparing risks like flu versus novel virus you've never seen um, because there's a much higher probability it could be extremely severe. And you need to take that into account in your calculations. You need to be that much more vigilant about those illnesses, those maladies, those problems. It's okay to respond vigorously to Ebola or terrorism, not because it is on average a bad problem year over year. It's probably far less than cancer or far less than maybe even falling off a ladder. Um, but because in any one year you take your eye off the prize, um, some one thing bad happens and it's going to be six orders of magnitude more, 10 orders of magnitude more. That's his point. So I tweeted this video at the end of January to make the point that, you know, these pundits are probably don't know what the hell they're talking about because they're really talking about sort of mean risks and they could easily be off. And and I think then we quickly saw in the month that followed that, you know, that that was the case. Um, and Taleb's thinking on this topic is, is very, very sound, which is that um, it doesn't matter. It's not only important what the average most likely expected outcome is. It's also deeply important what the distribution of probability for outcomes are. It's very important. And I think that's still important today with um, the COVID pandemic, which I guess I'll come to when I start talking about John's paper. Um, okay, so why do I say all this? So I think that's the way you should think about it. Um, uh, now, I think some of us who watch the news or on Twitter, uh, we see something that um, is problematic. I call this, uh, I said, I just wrote down the paper, I'm going to talk about Twitter in the time of COVID. Um, one, um, my God, you know, I think I think Twitter, it should be billing for uh, the work of a, a therapist or psychiatrist because, you know, so much of what you see just like tweet after tweet, tweet it's just people's anxiety, uncertainty, uh, fear translating into just a deluge, uh, just sort of an outpouring of, of, of opinions and thoughts and wanting to have like very certain recommendations and very clear ideas and anyone who doesn't do that to want to shame them and punish them and criticize them. And that, that's like kind of classic Twitter um, at its worst. And, and that's really kind of what I've seen more and more over the last few years. Um, and I just see so many stupid things from, um, let me just leave it at that. I kept saying things that are going to let you know who I'm talking about, so I don't want to do it. Okay. I feel bad for these people because they, at the end of the day, it is just anxiety. It's just like somebody who, you know, they should pick up the phone and call a friend and talk some stuff out. That's really what they want to do. The next thing, um, I think Twitter's also brought out that there are a bunch of people who I think are capitalizing on the COVID thing by becoming quote unquote COVID experts. A friend of mine who's at a uh, very prestigious medical school called me up recently and said uh, there's one of his colleagues is on television over and over to talk about COVID. Um, and this person has a title where one who didn't know better might think this person happened to know a lot about COVID. And that's probably how this person got invited to these television shows in the first place. But he said that, you know, this person actually doesn't know shit about COVID. This person doesn't study it, doesn't study pandemics, doesn't study in infectious disease, doesn't know shit about this topic at all. This person literally reads articles on Monday and then goes on television Tuesday to talk about it. And I think for those of us who 
follow some characters on Twitter, we would say that, yeah, there's a ton of that going on. People who don't formally study these things, who don't build these models, who are out there with lengthy threads trying to educate or explain, and uh, and and they really are sucking a lot of oxygen down uh, online, um, which is fine, but I think we can't forget um, what's really the motivation here, which is that, you know, there's a certain uh, phenotype of person, I think, who um, enjoys the spotlight, you know? I think that there's some people who are more seduced by that, and they happen to be the people you see over and over again on TV. And there are a lot of people who don't know shit about what we're dealing with, but who happen to to go there over and over again, repeating the same things over and over again, or taking more intense positions or minimizing the fact that there is disagreement or nuance. Um, okay. Those are some initial thoughts. Um, before I start talking about John Ioannidis, um, let me just talk about one other article that caught my eye. This was the article by Dr. Mukherjee that appeared in the New Yorker. Um, you know, a long article about sort of history of medicine woven with viral dose, woven with immunology. That's all fine and good. You know, it's an entertaining article. Um, but then he got to his recommendations at the end, which uh, made my eyes bug out a little bit. Um, I'll just read you some of what he wrote, give you some colorful commentary. As the virus continues to cyclone across the world, we will begin to find quantitative answers to these questions of how exposure intensity and subsequent viral loads relate to the clinical course of COVID-19. We will supplement the bird's eye view with a worm's eye view. How will these insights change the way we manage patients, hospitals, and populations? Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I was very, that's a great setup, which is, you know, you think the viral load matters, viral dose matters, inoculum dose matters. How will, how, how will that change things? I want to know. Okay. Back to Dr. Mukherjee. Start with the relationship between exposure, intensity, and infection. Think for a moment of how we monitor those who work with radiation. Using radiation dosimetry, we quantify someone's total exposure and set limits on it. We already know how critical it is for doctors and nurses to limit exposure to coronavirus by using protective equipment, masks, gloves, gowns. But for healthcare workers on the front lines of COVID-19 pandemic, especially in places where protective equipment is scarce, we might also keep track of total exposure and put in place viral dosimetry controls so that one individual can avoid repeated interactions with some set of highly contagious patients. Let me pause there and say, what what the hell nonsense is this? I mean, this is total non this is totally crazy stuff. Uh, we people who work in radiation exposure wear a badge that uh, keeps track of how much radiation they're exposed to, and then when they get to a certain amount, which I think is what something like twenty millisieverts per year. Actually, I, I should have checked that before I came on the air. Somebody can fact check me on that. There's some amount, you know, millisievert radiation per annum where people say that's enough. Uh, you know, you're done for the year. Uh, your goal is to stay under that, so we monitor for that. Um, you know, that's how we use radiation dosimetry. How the hell do you plan on using Using that for healthcare workers, quote, particularly in places where protective equipment is scarce. You want to have like a badge on them that says how many times they get coughed on, how much COVID's in the cough, and pull them off the line if they get like three coughs in a row. What are you What are you talking about? There's no such test. There's no such badge. There's no such thing that's going to measure viral particles in the air. It's not going to happen in the near future. This is a pie in the sky science fiction tale that's only going to happen maybe on the order of 20, 30 years if you devoted your life to working on it, perhaps maybe, but not likely to happen in the near future. The only only near future solution is to make the goddamn mask gloves and gowns that people need to make, which is a very basic thing, a barrier method, which has existed since the 1800s. And you don't need to come up with some novel badge that monitors viral exposure, um, especially in places where protective equipment is scarce. What, what sense does this make? Doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, the New Yorker is not a place where you should be able to like spout Medical hypotheses, you know, this, this, is, this is supposed to be some sort of news reporting on events. 
okay, if that were the only example, I, would, I wouldn't have picked on it, but there's, it doubles down. Let me read you the next paragraph. Establishing a relationship between dose and disease severity could, in turn, affect patient care. Okay, we could identify pre-symptomatic patients who are likely exposed to the highest doses of virus, someone cohabitating or socializing with multiple sick family members, as with the close-knit Fusco family of Freehold, New Jersey, which had four deaths, or a nurse exposed to a set of patients shedding large amounts of virus. We might predict a more severe experience of the disease and give them priority when it came to limited medical resources so they could be treated faster, earlier, or more intensively. Okay, so what is this saying here? If we had some test that could identify pre-symptomatic people who are exposed to the most virus. Okay, so already I think it's going to be very difficult how you're going to get this test. So they're going to have to walk around with something that captures how much virus they're exposed to. Um, because once it gets in the body, of course, the body's own processes allow it to replicate at different speeds. So that won't tell you about exposure. But let's say, whatever, you want to swab their nose or find out people with high viral loads in the back of the nasal pharynx, perhaps, who are asymptomatic. He calls them pre-symptomatic. But you really, they're asymptomatic, and you don't know if they're going to be symptomatic or not, um, such as the Fusco family. This is the unfortunate New York Times story where the mother died, and I think three of the children ended up dying. Um, or a nurse exposed to patients shedding large amounts of virus. Uh, okay, hopefully uh, in this day and age, we would be able to provide that nurse with proper uh, personal protective equipment. Okay, we might predict a more severe experience of the disease. I mean, I think that this is very fanciful thinking that in the near future, you're going to be able to use viral loads and noses to predict who's going to have more severe disease or not. Um, uh, I think it's going to be a very, very difficult to get that data. Um, it is no guarantee that that those things will correlate, especially when you're talking about a test that is administered very differently uh, based on how much somebody shoves that thing back in your nose and where they swab and how much they push and those sorts of things. Uh, but here's what really blows me away. Give them priority when it came to limited medical resources so they can be treated faster, earlier, more intensively. Uh, what, on earth, what on earth ethical principle justifies that somebody who had more family members um, uh, uh, potentially cough on them or give them droplet inoculum, they are prioritized for limited medical resources over people who happen to get less inoculum? That makes no sense at all. That is a totally crazy thing I've ever heard read in my life. What is the sense does this make? If you are very, very sick and you happen to be coughed on by one person or had a low initial inoculum, you should not get the priority of medical resources? What the hell are you talking about? Why? And you shouldn't be treated faster, earlier, more intensively? Treated with what? There's no treatment that's faster, earlier. There's no, no, there's no known treatment. The treatment is supportive care and more supportive care and best ICU care. There is no known treatment. Um, and it certainly has nothing to do with how much virus you got exposed to in the beginning to give you priority for limited medical resources. This is bankrupt, uh, bankrupt thinking. Uh, you know, Zeke Emanuel has a nice article in the New England Journal of Medicine that, that outlines, I think, reasonable principles um, for the allocation of scarce resources. And I think the most reasonable principle, of course, is the principle of beneficence. Or, or the desire to do the greatest good for the greatest number, which would prioritize, I think, fairly younger people with more years of life left than older people with fewer years of life left. I think that's a generally fair principle that I think most people in society would subscribe to. Zeke has some other principles like giving priority to first-line healthcare workers and, and police and firefighters who need to keep society going. I think there can be a little bit more um, discussion around that issue, and uh, but certainly a family where um, you had more viral inoculum over a family with less viral inoculum, uh, uh, that has nothing to do with anything. And I don't think there's an ethicist on this planet who would dare try to defend one over the other, um, that um, somebody uh, should get priority for a vent or, or other life 
other limited medical resources. Okay, so I think that's crazy. Um, and the last point. Finally, the care of COVID-19 patients could change if we began to track virus counts. These parameters could be gauged using fairly inexpensive and easily available laboratory methods. Okay, let me just pause there and say, um, uh, we need a way to test people first. Once you're testing people who have symptoms and you can test them all in the near future, then maybe you can have a way to quantitatively track the viral count. Okay, but, you know, I guess that's a, that's a, that's a dream. Okay, so imagine a two-step process going on. Identify infected patients and then quantify viral loads in nasal and respiratory secretions, particularly in people who are likely to require the highest level of treatment. Correlating viral counts and therapeutic measures with outcomes might result in different strategies of care or isolation. Mm, I don't know about this because if somebody is sick and they're shedding virus, if it's a little virus or a lot of virus, you're probably not going to want to let them gallivant around. Uh, they probably need to be isolated. The isolation should be enough that the virus cannot escape the isolation in both cases, irrespective of the quantitative level. Um, so I'm not sure that it will change your isolation strategies. I'm not sure that it will change your care strategies because as of now, we have no drug that are proven to be effective in this disease. So why you would give anyone a drug over not, you might change the way in which you enroll in randomized trials. But I guess we already have an easy enrollment criteria for initial randomized trials, which are people sick enough to require ICU, which is a uh, clinical phenotype that's probably much more important than the surrogate of viral load. Um, and uh, in general... No, I mean, what the hell are you talking about? This was, we're not there yet, and uh, by the time we get there, this whole thing might be behind us because we are still have a situation where uh, people who have body aches and fevers and chills and runny nose and cough uh, can't get tested. Uh, you got to work on that first. Okay. Last paragraph. The value of quantitative approach applies to clinical studies as well. Clinical drug trials are typically more informative when run on subjects who aren't yet critical. Once the subjects have reached that stage, any therapy might be too little too late. And if the disease course in such patients is followed using viral load metrics rather than tracking symptoms alone, the effect of a drug in different trials can be compared more easily and accurately. I uh, don't think that's true at all. I think uh, medicine has always been interventions have worked better on people with um, more disease severity. Generally, uh, those interventions um, uh, work less well, um, absolutely, perhaps similarly well relatively on people with less severe disease states. I think this is just kind of buying into this mantra that some cancer drugs don't work because we're giving them too late. Um, we're going to have some data on this soon that shows that mantra is um, really probably not the case at all. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, it's fine to write a New Yorker article. Um, it's a certain type of venue. It's a venue about the public education of science and medicine. That's the venue. Um, it's fine to write it, uh, and it can be used to make, I think, strong points. Uh, but it's really not the place to to speculate about, you know, some sort of viral dosimetry where we pull we pull frontline workers off work when uh, their total exposure goes up, and when we don't have protective equipment. Okay, that's this is not the place for the New Yorker. This kind of total rampant speculation. It's not the place to say um, we should prioritize people who cohabitated or socialized with multiple sick family members for more limited medical resources. Uh, you want to try to toss that argument out in an ethics journal where peer review would, would stomp you. Um, it's probably not the place to say that we should, um, you know, have inclusion criteria for trials based on viral loads. I mean, I think that's, that's you got to go for a trials journal there. I mean, it's just not the place to say these things. These are things that are like, you know, real 
somebody in good faith is offering a medical hypothesis should try to put it out in the peer review literature and or, or at least on a preprint and let people discuss it in that forum. It's not for for prime time for the public dissemination. So that's the problem with that article. And it really didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I was kind of and then I talked to somebody about it afterwards and he was like it doesn't make any sense at all. And this person was like, this should not be, should not be here. So, I mean, and why do I pick on him? Because I think it's just the, speaks to the fact that, you know, everyone wants to be a pundit. And, you know, if you, if you study something totally unrelated and on a faculty at a premium medical school and you get asked to be on CNN, you'll read all the articles Monday that you'll spout out on Tuesday. Everyone wants to be a pundit. Um, and I think uh, that's good uh, if you can back it. Now, shifting. A fiasco in the making. As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold, we are making decisions without reliable data by John Yonides. I had a chance to read this commentary. I also had a chance to listen to a one-hour interview on YouTube that John has put out, as well as a monk debate between John and the dean of the School of Public Health at Yale University. And I think having looked at all these three sources, I have a sense of what John's argument is here. Um, and uh, I want to articulate it. And I think, um, you know, on a number of points, I will agree with him wholeheartedly. Um, and I think on uh, one point, I think I might I might push back a little bit. And so I think that's that's the discussion. Um, so one, I think I think you just have to acknowledge the fact that um, John Unides, I think, is a very a very smart person, a very clever thinker. Um, uh, the world is better off uh, on the whole for having him around in it. Uh, he has uh, done some really sort of visionary work um, on reliability of medical science, on replication, um, on trustworthiness of results. Um, it's not just that that he was visionary in thinking about this topic. It's that like every paper many papers you read by him are super clever. I mean, the guy is like a clever factory. Um, you know, who would think, um, you know, to open a Boston cookbook and throw a dart at it and find random ingredients and look to see if they increase or decrease cancer and then find 80% do and then conclude that, you know, that likely many of those findings are spurious. I mean, that's a very clever observation that he's made. Uh, you know, the other clever papers are papers that track, um, observational studies that are highly cited and whether or not they're subsequently confirmed or, or rejected by randomized control trials, mathematical modeling that shows under a fair set of pretest probability, um, factoring in the study power and the alpha error and the bias of studies, uh, are studies more likely to be true or false, which is why most public research findings are false. You know, a number of very clever publications, um, you know, really clever paper, the potential importance of data that doesn't exist, which Rhett talks about all of the studies that get put in the file drawer or don't even make it to the file drawer. Um, and, and how if we had those results, what would the totality of the scientific literature look like? So the reason I say all this is that when John writes something on the topic, I think um, you got to take it seriously. And I think, um, you know, unfortunately, there were some people who, um, you know, were quick to dismiss um, his his commenting as uh, as contrarian and and uh, and misguided. And I guess I object to that word uh, being used to describe him Um there's nothing. He's not a contrarian. There's nothing contrary about him. He doesn't take positions uh, to be contrary. That's not one of his motives in any way, shape, or form. If you read his body of work, you will find um, uh, he has a very consistent viewpoint, incredibly consistent viewpoint, incredibly consistent thinking on topics. Um, and in many cases, 
It is not contrarian, but in line with the professional standards, such as genome-wide association studies. In other settings, it is contrarian. Uh, but it is not he who is uh, contrarian. It is he who has a very consistent set of views on reliability of medical science, and it is the fields that they themselves choose to um, try for replicability or not. Um, and that's why he runs into talents. The other thing about it is, um, you know, it's pretty brave. I mean, there are a lot of idiots like, this Richard Epstein or whatever, these these people who are commenting about COVID and they're just saying like, you know, uh, things that, that further some political purpose or they want to support the economy or they want to support, you know, some blunder that was done before. Um, you know, John is not that person. You know, he he's, he's giving you his opinion on, I, I think, the, the scientific facts of the matter. I, I doubt, um, you know, he has any uh, political skin in the game here. He doesn't care. Uh, if anything, I'm sure like many academics might be critical of current political decision making. Um, so, I, you know, he's not one of these political pundits who's an idiot. He's a very, very smart person who's, um, you know, looked at this and has, uh, I think, a different point of view, um, some of which I agree with and some of which I don't agree with, which I'm going to talk about. Um, but I think the mere fact he's is going to go out there and he's going to say this, uh, he's a little bit brave because he knows he's going to get, I think, um, dumped on. I mean, I think he, he, he realizes that's a possibility. And I think... Um, so you got to give him a little credit for that, I think. I mean, you know, it, 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 is, it is something that at a time where, you know, 99 out of 100 people say lock everything down, that, uh, you know, somebody is going into this and saying, you know, let's maybe think twice about that. Um, uh, and here are some questions that I still have. Um, you know, even if you ultimately don't agree with what he says at the end of the day. Okay, so that's my favorable intro to him. Um, I think... Having listened to all these things, I think he's making several points of which I think some will be indisputable. Um, one is, you know, if you really want to understand what's going on, you need to uh, get a random sample of 10,000 people in Chicago, in Portland, in Illinois, in Kansas, in New York City. And you just got to test them all um, for SARS-CoV-2 with PCR in the nasopharynx and see what is the baseline characteristics, what is the baseline prevalence of this disease, what percent of people are symptomatic, what percent of people um, are asymptomatic who have this disease, who are carrying it, um, and to repeat that at regular intervals to get a sense. And if you were really had your eye on the prize, you might have been doing this even in advance. So you get some sense of what the true denominator is here. Um, okay. You know, unfortunately, we didn't do that. Um, and... There are a lot of people in charge who were lucky if they got both hands on the steering wheel, let alone if they're if they're driving between the lines. Um, so, you know, OK, we didn't do that. But I think he's right there. I think his next point is um, that if you um, were to have a, a shelter in place, as we do now in many states, but not all states, um, and were to ratchet it up a notch, which was that like not only shelter in place, but like individual family members stay in their own rooms and you minimize contact even within households at some level of enforcement. Uh, you know, I think he's very confident that you will shut this whole thing down and within 20, 25 days, there will be no more viral transmission because you'll cut it off at the, at the, at the root. Um, and I think his point is that he would characterize such a measure as medieval medicine. Uh, and he contrasts that with 21st century science medicine, which he thinks would have to do with um, utilizing the tools of science to better pinpoint and strategically implement a strategy. I think a lot of people will agree that it is a, a medieval medical practice to have social isolation and distancing. Um, but I think the counter argument would be that unfortunately, it is the inevitable strategy. We're left in a situation where we don't have adequate testing. Um, some of the people who may be running the show <laughs> appear to not know what the hell they're doing. And so if we don't do this, the other option might not be doing anything at all. And that could be a cataclysmically bad uh, because of the fat tail probability. 
Um, I think John is annoyed with the confidence of folks who think social distancing must help or that we have to be doing the right thing. And I think, I think you know, maybe he's a little bit right that um, that uh, that people who who promote the current strategy, um, maybe they're doing so with a bit too much bluster, um, and maybe that is rubbing him the wrong way. Um, but maybe what they should be doing it is doing that with a lot more um, uncertainty. Uh, but maybe the, the downside to that is if you do it with a lot of uncertainty, then you're going to have cheaters left, right, and center. And so maybe that'll kind of undermine what you even seek to do. Um, all right. So uh, then let me talk about the paper in stat where he makes some some good points, but also some debatable points. I think one of the good points he makes is what is the case fatality rate? He disagrees with the 3.4% of the WHO. He thinks many people are not being tested um, and that you're more likely to test people who are sicker and that's that will inflate the the case fatality rate. And that's absolutely true, I think. Um, he talks about the Diamond Princess cruise ship having a 1% case fatality rate. That was probably true when there were seven deaths initially, but now I think there's as many as 10 deaths. Um, uh, and it's gone up from there. He projects the diamond cruise ship mortality on the day age structure of the U.S. So that's very clever. He finds that it would be about 0.125%. In the debate on on, on Monk, um, you know, he speculates that at the end of the day, we come in at a 0.2 to 0.3% case fatality rate, which is still two or threefold higher than the flu, whereas the gentleman from the, the dean of the School of Public Health at Yale, he came in at about um, 0.7 to, I think, 1%, so about sevenfold to tenfold higher than the than the flu. I think that is an important distinction, um, but for the practical purposes of what do we do sort of from a public health standpoint, might not be that important. I think one of the things that I have not yet heard him discuss is that, you know, when you do talk about uh, a 0.1% mortality rate with the flu, uh, you also talk about a situation where a lot of the population has at least some partial immunity from having prior exposure to the flu, and here you have a virus where uh all our current knowledge suggests there is no uh, intrinsic innate population immunity, and, and that does have a, a big difference, which is your 0.2% might be, in terms of actually body count, might be a whole lot bigger because you're going to infect a lot more people. Um, I think one of the reasons why his article um, was criticized is that the tone maybe did come across a bit to some as if it was dismissive and as if the lives of the people who are going to die uh, from this condition don't matter. Um, you know, I think lines like this, which is, uh, if if that were the true rate, locking down the world with potentially tremendous social and financial consequences may be totally irrational. It's like an elephant being attacked by a house cat, frustrated and trying to avoid the cat. The elephant jumps off a cliff and dies. Um, and also, I think a line like this, in the most pessimistic scenario, which I do not espouse, if the coronavirus infects 60% of the population and 1% of the people die, that will transmit into 40 million deaths globally. The vast majority of this hecatomb will be people with limited life expectancies. This is in contrast to 1918, where many young people died. I think that also is kind of, the tone is a little bit wrong, implying that, you know, if we were to lose 40 million people, um, you know, who are the ages of 60, 70, 80, um, with comorbidities like hypertension, which is, you know, really kind of a mild comorbidity or diabetes, um, that that's not as bad as if they were younger. And from a years of life loss standpoint, you know, that might be the case. But from a very human standpoint, I think that that kind of rubbed people the wrong way. And, and I think understandably so, because that would be a tremendous tragedy. So I think, you know, what he gets right is, I mean, some of his specific recommendations are right, repeatedly sample, assess, um, that for the current situation, there should be some sort of articulated stopping criteria for when we might liberalize society that's not really been articulated or well agreed upon. 
Um, I think what he got wrong was I think the tone came across a little bit dismissive and flippant and and does ignore, I think, the reality, which is that there are cities that the event is exploding in. Um, and, you know, we can all point to certain things, you know, why Bergamo, uh, you know, they had a festival, people were hugging. Um, they also uh, have a very elderly population. Uh, why New York City, well, they have a lot of public transit, it's very density. You know, we could point to things, but these are all very sort of an anecdotal impression of why it's bad in certain places. We don't, I don't think anyone has a full understanding of why it's bad in certain places. Uh, the capacity to overwhelm the healthcare system is a tremendous problem. And we don't want to end up in a situation where um, we have to use, um, uh, what was it, uh, the amount of uh, the highest doses that people who are exposed to the highest doses of virus um, might be given priority when it came to limited medical resources. You know, we, we don't want to get in a situation where we're going to have to take sort of suggestions like, like that. So I think, um, you know, I think Taleb is right in the sense that you're talking about something that, um, you know, these are sort of one in 100 year events. Uh, making decisions in these in these settings is more akin to making uh, foreign policy or social political decisions. It's less akin to making medical decisions. You know, it's easy to talk about hydroxychloroquine because we know what the sample size is. We know we can do randomized trials. We know we can answer the question very quickly. You start talking about what a nation should do to stop a pandemic, you can't really do randomized trials. Um, maybe there are some tiny ways in which you can think about ways in which you can do some cluster randomization, lighten up restrictions in one place versus another. You can kind of use some experimentation to guide you a little bit, um, but you're not going to be able to do it the same way. You can do it with pills and individuals, of course. Um, and also... Um, um, when you're in the initial stages and I think you have to accept the reality, which is testing is a fiasco, it's a disaster. And, and, and the person running the show, uh, might not be able to act with surgical precision. And as such, it might be sort of blunt force medieval medicine or nothing. And I think that's the other reality. Uh, so it's a lot more like foreign policy. I think this kind of decision-making, um, and, as such, I think Taleb is, is right that there is a huge fat tail on this. I said that two months ago. I saw that that analogy is true. And Taleb is right. That's a high, it's a high tail event. You have to really think about risk mitigation in a very different way um, than you do with sort of known events. Um, some of John's specific recommendations, of course, I think are, are very reasonable. Um, but I think the tone of the article is perhaps a bit, bit misguided. And I think maybe unnecessarily took away from the good points he was making. Last thoughts on this COVID-19. I mean, I think it's it's just important to highlight um, the key fuck-ups, which is between 2004 to 2012, uh, there was a number of opportunities to invest in a uh, vaccine for SARS-CoV-1 or coronavirus in general. Um, that vaccine effort um, was uh, not funded and and deemed to be sort of a poor financial investment or not the best use of government money. And I think the real takeaway here is that um, – uh, boy, don't you look uh, really foolish if you thought that wasn't a good investment because now we've lost, you know, on the order of trillions of dollars. And if you had shelled out maybe 50 million, you, you, we might not still have a vaccine that is effective here, uh, but we would probably have a lot of the apparatus to create one in place. And we might even have a vaccine with some low degree of cross protection, which might be useful. I think the next key fuck up is, uh, of course, um, canning the pandemic response team. Uh, you know, it's so easy to think that government serves unessential functions when government is uh, where buck stops for sort of unspeakable risk that no one in the private sector will ever be able to tackle or or manage uh, that goes to government. Um, and so instead of instead of developing vaccines and funding pandemic response teams and having some global surveillance networks, uh, uh, we're instead going to use $2 trillion as a, a Band-Aid uh, after we cut ourselves severely on a machine when we could have had a safety guard. Um, you know, 
So that, that's really kind of why um, sort of limited government thinking is 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 very misguided. I mean, once a pandemic hits, then no one's libertarian anymore. And then I think just the just the the shit job with testing, I think, is the the last fuck up because. You know the testing situation is just a, just a, just a fiasco, and I mean books are going to be written on uh, all the the people who blundered it, um, and and without testing, you're you're blind and you really lack the surgical precision. You can't do contact tracing. You can't isolate this thing. You can't do what you know many successful nations are doing, which is uh, sequestering the people um, who are, are at risk of transmitting the disease, um, having uh, uh, services. Uh, food brought to them, making them wear masks, making some of them relocate to hotel rooms briefly, um, these sorts of interventions, which could really sort of quell an epidemic. Um, so overall take home points is I think uh, the medical side of things is 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 very clear, uh, randomized controlled trials, reputative agents, best supportive care, the ethics of how to ration life limiting resources. I think the article by Zeke Emanuel is a, is a very good starting point and there might be some some Dis- disagreement there, but I think the general principle of of using um, ventilators to to maximize potential years of life or to save people who have greater probability of being saved, I think that's well accepted. That is a principle of triage. I think Zeke makes another point, which is: is there a moral difference between not offering somebody a ventilator and then withdrawing a ventilator to give it to somebody else? And I think that um, you know, of course, there's a seminal article by James Rachel and colleagues that's uh, called "Active and Passive Euthanasia" that makes the argument that this is not, in fact, a moral distinction. And of course, I think that that is correct. Um, so Zeke is right that in desperate times, uh, we may be able to withdraw um, life-supporting measures from people to give them to others who who have better probability of survival. Uh, I think that that is reasonable. I think that uh, the situation in New York uh, is 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 a powder keg. And it it could blow, and that's and and it could blow anywhere, and it can blow anywhere because it's a fat tail probability event, and uh, that was the whole point why I tweeted that out. I think at the end of the month in January, um, whilst many of the people on TV now were talking about how influenza is so much worse than than COVID, um, because it is not just important what the most likely outcome is; um, it has to do with what the probability of the worst outcomes are, and that's how you have to manage sort of um, global political. Uh, foreign policy uh, pandemic. I mean, it's kind of a different school of thinking. Uh, so I guess those are the thoughts on this topic. I think um, for for those of us um, who are, are stuck in our houses for a lot of the time, my advice is uh, less Twitter. I think it's full of nonsense. A lot of people who don't know what they're talking about, who are tweeting mostly driven out of anxiety. I think it's time to shift more to the books. I myself have enjoyed some fantastic novels that I had purchased for years and had never read, but now I'm finally reading and they've been fantastic. And I have in fact caught up on almost all of the delinquent projects that I had with um, mostly trainees who had sent things to me and I had made many excuses for why I couldn't look at them, which is which is the, the eternal truth of medicine, which is that when you're a trainee, all you think about is why the attending is not getting back to you about the manuscript you sent them three months ago. And when you're the attending, you are that, uh, you're just the bastard you used to hate. You know, you're just the person who's sitting on those manuscripts. And so I'm not sitting on them anymore. I am not. And so I am good. And uh, as to John, I think, uh, you know, when the history books are written and people really take a close look at, you know, everything he's written, um, he's going to come across as probably one of the best thinkers in medicine at of all time. Uh, this particular article in Stat, I think that the tone, uh, the tone, and it's nothing he said directly, but it is the tone. The tone is, the tone was wrong. 
and the tone was a bit dismissive. And I think that that is why it got a little bit of criticism. And that's why he's making the rounds with the video and the monk debate, doing his best to sort of, I think, maybe walk back a little bit of it, but to also make his points on what can be done practically. Um, and if you were a decision maker, he's the kind of person you'd want at the table um, because you know he's not going to bullshit. He's going to tell you what he thinks. And uh, and I think the same is true for Tony Fauci. Um, whether it's true for others, <laughs> who knows? So on that positive note, we're going to turn to a classical hematology chat. Uh, I hope you like these random thoughts on COVID-19. And last thought, uh, you know, a bunch of people were asking me, you know, what do you think about all this on Twitter to give my opinion on Twitter? And of course, I didn't want to give it on Twitter. I give it to you in, in the podcast form because then you can get sort of the nuance and, and you can hear how I'm, I'm talking about it to get a sense of, you know, what I'm thinking about. Uh, and and I almost wanted to say to these people on Twitter, uh, you know, the, the last thing we need on Twitter is just another asshole with an opinion. You know, we just don't need any more. Just don't need any more of those people on Twitter giving their opinion on what we should be doing. Uh, you know, so, that, so that's why I didn't put it out there. All right. On that positive note, we'll turn to classical hematology chat. I'm back in plenary session HQ in the new HQ, joined again by Dr. Sven Olsen and Dr. Joe Schatzel for classical hematology chat. Listeners will know that Dr. Sven Olsen is the voice behind Question of the Week with Sven Olsen. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> How convenient. Yeah, which is the hematology-oncology question. That, that, uh, that uh, wasn't a punchline. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Joe Schatzel is assistant professor here at the Oregon Health and Science University. Both Sven and Joe are classical hematologists. That's right. That's how you identify yourselves. I yeah. am a can, we, can we get past the, the, the thinly veiled joke behind the classical hematology at some point? We'll, we'll, never, <laughs> we'll never do it. I like the name. You're I, the one who always lapses and says benign. I know, I know. You know, I was actually recently at a, I was uh, uh, interviewing at another institution and one of the Traitor. faculty there Traitor. said, you know, <laughs> the first thing I want to tell you is it should be classic because if you say classical, it makes it sound like we're old. Oh, oh shoot! And I couldn't so tell if it was a joke or not, so I, I think politely being serious. Yeah, I politely smiled and we and you did that on. smile that was like bet- <laughs> between agreement and joke. Like, yeah, hey, like, yes. nice to meet you. Yeah, yes. Nice to meet you. Oh, so they say classic hematology. This is only one person so far who said that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On our logo, it says general hematology. General hematology. Yeah. But that typically often includes malignant hematology. I know that's the thing. I think um, you know in America because. Hematology and oncology have always been linked in training. And people have looked at this recently. There was a nice piece from Ash about how many people do classic hematology. It is a the t- small minority 4% of people who up. do hemonc training. Of okay. graduating fellows. Well, would you yeah. put me in that category? Am I a classic hematologist? I think they probably mean people who go into an academic position, which is solely mm-hmm. like non-malignant heme, as in thrombosis, hemostasis, yeah. bleeding. So you're saying I'm not in the group? Probably not. Because I attend on classical hematology. Yeah, but you're this odd amalgam of like everything. Yeah, I try to do it. We want pure, cla- p- yeah. purely classical. Yeah, so it's not enough for you that I have a passion for classical hematology. You want me to stifle my other life goals. I mean, if you yeah. really want to use that title, I'm flattered. And you can How use it. How could you be like, we want you to take a deep dive into it. Just pure classical hematology? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's easy to, it, I mean, it, I could take a deep dive easily because after the first level of uh, what few randomized control trials you have, there's not a lot there. There's. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that maybe you highlight on the problem because the yeah. incidence of our diseases are common. Thrombosis, super common, more common than any type of cancer. No, and and often and, the uh, complications are dire. Yeah, but I think one of the problems is is aside from uh, the few places where the street lamp doth shine, uh, there's a <laughs> lot of darkness in that. Yeah, and I do find that one of my uh, pet peeves of classic hematology uh, is that um, uh, as evidence level goes down, confidence 
doesn't go down. It stays super high mm-hmm. that we're doing the right there's thing. There's a lot of room for creativity it's, when it gets yeah, to that point. Yeah, it's easy to be an expert when there's no data. Yeah, and <laughs> it's it's just yeah. a, on force of just so storytelling and conviction of pathophase. But Dr. Prasad, you were recently attending on the benign hematology service. Classical hematology. Classical That's hematology right, service. I was. I wanted you, to bring I, it up. I dare say I, I feel like you enjoyed it. Oh, I Mm. did enjoy it. Um, well, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about yeah. that. You know, Sven Olsen, that uh, there was a fellow who was uh, as a pr- was a pretending on the service. And that means a fellow who uh, is nearing the end of their training, who's soon to be an attending, and they come around and they are the attending. Uh, and, and I'm only the second attending uh, supervising that fellow who is an attending. And that fellow, was that fellow good or bad? How would you rate that fellow? I, I mean... I was good. I, <laughs> I heard good. Super, I superb. I yeah. think it was, I will yeah. say that uh, I think it was good because I think I enjoyed myself and I think if I had done poorly, I wouldn't have had any fun. So it was a good time. It was a good time. I guess uh, I was. I have to give a lot of props because Sven Olsen came and you know, Dr. Schatzel, mm-hmm. he, he was pretty much an attending. He, uh, he uh, knew the answer. That's uh, the first least, step. Well, yeah. yeah at least, um, <laughs> or at least I pretended to be the expert when there was no data really yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, uh, he was, he, he didn't lack for confidence. Uh, uh, and, uh, and what really did impress me was a couple times I was like, okay, give us an improvisational lecture and teach us. And he had them. You had them in your back pocket. You had these lectures ready to go. Where'd you get those lectures? Um, you know, that's a passion of mine. I just like to, I've given enough talks. I like to volunteer myself for talks for the residents and the students and the PA group, and I think from that, I just have a repertoire of those in my back pocket. That's, That's good, good to have. Best yeah. advice I ever got: never turn down a talk. Really? Yeah, just do it. You that, le- you're learning. I would so agree. Every would time agree. you prepare a talk, you polish your own knowledge on it. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I'd say, uh, uh, yeah, in the beginning of your career, never turn down a talk. But then you get a lot of invitations, you're going to have <laughs> to yeah. turn down something. But then you have to keep totally... repeating your talks that yeah. you've done before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just make a few talks. Well, let me ask you this. Are you, will you let Dr. Olson uh, be a pretending on your service, Dr. Schatzel? I would gladly. I, I would. I would love the opportunity to roll in uh, after eight a.m. and let Sven take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted yeah. to ask you something, Dr. Schatzel. I recently mm-hmm. saw that you were an attending on service, and yes. I saw your team uh, walking the hallway. Mm-hmm. And uh, what caught my eye was that uh, every uh, member of the team was wearing a, a suit and a shirt and tie. <laughs> that did happen, yeah. And uh, and and later, I asked them. I said, "What's going on here? Is this a Mayo Clinic convention? I'm not aware of." Uh, and they told me that Dr. Schatzel likes us to wear suits and tie. Is this the case, Dr. Ch- Is there a dress code when you're on service? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I was I was trained on the East Coast mm-hmm. and um, we don't need to get into my life story, but I uh, I worked in fast food for many years mm-hmm. and you had to wear a uniform. You did. And then when I went into uh, medicine, uh, ties were prevalent prevalent uh, in East Coast medicine and here uh, they are the minority. Oh, of course. The yeah. classic Portland outfit of course is uh, yeah. dress shoes, slacks, uh, a, a collared shirt uh, paired with a high performance uh, vest from Columbia, uh, yes. Patagonia. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Vest may be the new suit. What's funny but, though yeah. is as Joe is describing this a fastidious attention to uh, you know dress wear. Mm-hmm. He has these brand new bright neon green Nike kicks. I'm breaking yeah. them in. I'm not seeing patience. <laughs> I'm not seeing patience for the rest of the day. I know. I actually thought that he was going to be um, uh, debuting the new iPhone for Silicon Valley or something yeah. like that. He looks like yeah. a, he could easily be in Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. I did wear a suit with bright green Nikes to this talk. I'm mm. not going to lie. <laughs> Well, that's enough of that. Let's turn to today's topic. So we've had an interested listener. We've had uh, uh, a plenard 
who's written into the podcast. And this planner was like, um, uh, take us through your decision making when it comes to two things. One, you have a patient who has an active cancer, undergoing cancer treatment, and they present with a deep vein thrombosis or, God forbid, a PE. Uh, how are you going to manage that? When are you thinking about low molecular weight heparin? When are you thinking about Coumadin? When are you thinking about DOACs? Uh, and then the follow-up question was, you have a patient at risk for thrombosis mm. with an active cancer who does not yet have it. How do you think about prophylaxis? And I think that's a topic that Sven and I talked briefly about when we, re- when we referred to the, the great, our Lord and Savior, uh, Karana, and the Karana score and, <laughs> and a recent paper there. So um, let's, let's start with that. So uh, maybe I'll let Sven take the first crack. So, you know, it wasn't that long ago in the course of my career that we used to give patients with cancer and a DVT Coumadin. But then mm-hmm. something came along and, and changed that. What was that? There were two trials. Um, Agnes Lee uh, has been uh, kind of sort of pioneered the the shift uh, in using low molecular weight heparin based on the clot and the catch trials. Mm-hmm. And those showed the superiority um, of low molecular weight, specifically tinsaparin mm-hmm. and daltaparin. Mm-hmm. Uh, to clot one is daltaparin and tinsaparin is catch. Catch. Correct. I will point out catch catch was not positive. Though. This is true, yes. Yeah. But yeah. in aggregate, I think yeah. that's sort of set the standard for low molecular weight being the treatment of choice for a cancer-associated thrombosis. That was the right answer on the test for uh, a long time. Uh, Real-world use, I'm not I'm not so sure. I, I mean, mean, certainly, yeah. it's until these DOAC trials came along, I think nobody tended to use warfarin. It was yeah. pretty much exclusively low molecular weight. I think the CLOT1 study changed things for people, which was a randomized yeah. control trial of daltaparin, mm-hmm. administered at a higher dose for, what, one week, and then it went to a basal dose in that trial. There was a dose reduction in CLOT1. Correct. And uh, it was tested against Coumadin head-to-head. So what did CLOT1 show, Dr. Olson? Uh, so a significant reduction in recurrent VTE yep. and really no difference in, in bleeding outcomes. So. Yeah, and that was and, – and also no difference in all-cause mortality. Mm-hmm. But let's just sweep that under the rug, shall we? Uh, but no, of course, the reduction in VTE and when <laughs> all, all else being equal is uh, is fair. So that's, I mean, I will say that yeah. for all these comparative trials of blood thinners for clots, all-cause all mortality is rarely looked at if, if uh, affected by mm-hmm. one or the it's other. It's a hard endpoint. Usually they use these lumped endpoints, which is any death, recurrent thrombus, death from thrombus. And, uh, yes. and I put an ultrasound yeah. on everyone at eight weeks and how many of them had incidentally discovered thrombus. That's right. usually in there too. Yeah, yeah. that's in the composite <laughs> primary endpoint. That's, yeah. the, that's what you need to boost the signal, screen clot, which we're going to talk about when yeah, we talk yeah. about prophylaxis. But I guess I would say, uh, you know, if you truly have symptomatic VTE, all things being cool, you don't want to have that. Um, there are all sorts of pharmacologic reasons why Coumadin isn't a terrific choice in somebody, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who's on cancer therapy, oh, who yeah. may be nauseous, vomiting, not eating every few, you know, few days every cycle need procedures uh, got procedures hold it. Yeah. hold it the INR is all over the place yeah um but at the same time daltaparin isn't a pleasure to take I mean subcutaneous injection in the belly uh that's quite true and you know I mean I was a f- I was starting fellowship when the doax came out and oh, I think wow. this is probably a good segue into yeah. this and I was interviewing at all these places and they knew that my passion was thrombosis so they said they asked me how I felt about DOACs and their cancer patients. I said, oh, there's no data yet. And they said, oh, yeah, we just give them to everybody because everybody hates the shots. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they told you, right? Uh, it seemed like the real world switched to DOACs way before these studies saying it was safe came out. And there's some registration data and pharmacy data to show that uh, cancer patients 
do not stay on Lovenox very long. Mm-hmm. It's just the real world uses often switches back to Warfarin before and now to Doax. And there is some data that after six months you can switch to Warfarin. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you yeah. talk about what was the sort of the hot topic when you were interviewing around. Because yeah. now for me, it's things like these drugs, Krizin, you know, we talked about yeah, just Yeah, Krizin, 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 on the last these. episode yeah, yeah, that's of CHC. Yeah. Yeah, every few years things come in vogue. Yeah, mm-hmm. what were the hot topics when I, of course, I uh, it was uh, the immunotherapy boom. Yeah, oh, yeah. and how NGS would uh, would would save us all. <laughs> we were just one NGS panel away from cures, and uh, we're we're still that way away. Okay, so uh, but coming back to this. Okay, so uh, then there were a couple of randomized control trials of DOAC versus Lomac white heparin. Uh, uh, I believe, to my knowledge, two. Are there more than two? Three. Three? What yeah. the heck? Okay, so take me through them. What are the three? So the first one was um, edoxaban, yeah. and that was a study in New England Journal. It was edoxaban versus low molecular yeah. weight, and it was... Hokusai VTE. Hokusai. So Hokusai is kind of the group that's been studying edoxaban. So that was the name of their trial when they just tried it for VTE. So this one showed a positive, um, significantly uh, reduced VTE recurrence with edoxaban. Mm-hmm. But a signal for increased bleeding if you used it, a DOAC, in people with GI cancers. Mm-hmm. And some urothelial, I believe. I can't in, in all these trials, it's the GI primarily and some GU that are the kind of concerning cancers that may be yeah. a higher risk for bleeding. And what was the um, uh, low molecular heparin that they were allowed to go up against? Uh, this was daltaparin. Daltaparin, yeah. You know, their primary endpoint was kind of interesting because they chose to make it a composite mm-hmm. of... Recurrent thrombosis or major bleeding. Okay. And uh, they, and uh, as a classical hematologist, you disagree that those two things should be weighed equally, don't you? you well, a man whose yeah. Twitter handle is Clotmaster <laughs> yeah. is not going to like that these two things are treated equally. Well, uh, I don't. I hadn't really. That had never really crossed under my nose before. And when I saw this data presented a couple of years ago, I thought that was an interesting decision because. Um, the thromboembolism uh, was definitely decreased with the doxaban, but mm-hmm. there was a little bit more major bleeding. Mm-hmm. And right. this, uh, that story has played out more than once with the doax and cancer patients. Mm-hmm. So if, um, uh, if they had made major bleeding their endpoint, it wouldn't have looked good at all. They would have lost. Yeah. I mean, it looks like they have maybe ha- they have double the major bleeding of daltaparin, it looks like. But what they lose in major bleeding, they gain in recurrent thromboembolism. That's mm-hmm. right. But yeah. my understanding is, and tell me if I'm wrong, that, um, that uh, classic or classical hematologists, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is true, uh, but I feel as if it's probably pretty close to the truth, um, which is that... Uh, if you all are back against the wall and you're forced mm-hmm. to choose, yeah, you nine out of ten times are going to say, "I'd rather have bleeding than thrombus." Yeah, um, I've talked to patients about this idea, and if you describe to them thrombus, particularly if you describe stroke, um, which has like a thrombosis with real significant psychosocial consequences, of course, people I mean, pretty routinely would rather have a bleed. But what if it's venous? You're talking arterial. Yeah, um, if that is their main risk, um, it's hard to say. Sven's pointed out that the mortality is from, higher actually for bleeding. From well, bleeding, the, yeah, the, ca- the case intense. fatality, the case yeah. fatality, and this is something yeah. I, as I've seen now, sort of discussed more and more because it comes into play when you decide mm-hmm. how long to treat, let's say, like an unprovoked clot, and you have to weigh the risks, of course, of bleeding and clotting. And they say that the risk, the case fatality rate for a major bleed, is about triple that of a clot, a recurrent clot. Mm-hmm. And so, 
if you're really weighing like a just a flat rate or incidence of recurrence yeah. of these things, and maybe you got to adjust those a little bit for the case fatality. So, I will say culturally, we treat we tend to favor anticoagulation over not. I know that's how yeah. that's the culture, and, and I, I guess I would say you yeah I mean in general. Except for really severe bleeds in a place you can't do anything about. Like, right, and uh, the yeah. recurrent and the quality of life is being compromised by a bleed. I think you just got to, as we all know, yeah. you got to take it on a case-by-case basis with the particular inv- individual yeah. in front of you. You got to be as honest as you can and have a good conversation. It's the only way to handle these things. I guess I would say that maybe my 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 um, my classic hematologist uh, veneer is showing a little bit because <laughs> because I take major bleeds a little bit seriously too. You know, I'm not sure I'm on this bandwagon. As some are, I believe, that from mm-hmm. my observation, Observation of uh, avoid clot at all cost and and bleeds you can transfuse is what I've been told uh, by some experts quote unquote yeah I oh. think I mean so the 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 truth that we always kind of use this this mandate or this paradigm that like well if they bleed you can just transfuse them and if they clot you can't do anything right? yes yeah. that's what we're taught so but I except mean, that when it's in the brain, except when the, the case brain, fatality rate is higher then you don't really right. have an option to transfuse uh, but I think part of it like if someone has a really advanced cancer that has a very very high mortality and it comes <clears> down to you could perish from a severe bleed in your brain yeah uh, but your cancer has a life expectancy of you know six months or less anyway uh, then do you want to be on a pill or do you want to be on a shot I don't know. That has way a huge component yeah. there too. So I guess, and and the third option, I guess, is that at some point, you know, maybe it's reasonable to withdraw anticoagulation in some yeah. of these patients. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's talk about. So this is the first study, the Doxaban study, and it kind of. Um, I don't know. It caught people's eye, and a lot of people, as Joe has pointed yeah. out, uh, you know, practice had changed uh, it before this. I think I had the thing with the Doxaban is it was pretty late to market as a DOAC. Mm. It has some real interesting data where they actually the subset of people whose renal function was too good it yeah. didn't work. So there's little caveats on the label about if your GFR is too high, you can't. You maybe should avoid it. Wait, I don't know that part. So what is the GFR if it's above um, what? Over. I believe it was the I believe it was the AFib trials and. Uh, the subset with, I think, a GFR over 90, right. actually, it didn't work. So. Uh, you'll have to, uh, I never prescribe it, so. For AFib, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the package insert, actually, I'm reading it right now, yeah. in patients with non-valvular AFib and a creatinine clearance above 95, the efficacy yeah. of a doxban for prevention of stroke was decreased. Do not use if the creatinine clearance is over 95. Yeah, but that's the thing. Which is See, the it, only drug I've ever seen. That yeah, that's, that. you can have two good. In yeah. our in our lab, it just says re- creatinine clearance over 60. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. I know. So. I guess that's another thing. I don't know if I've ever seen it. Yeah. And I do have to I do have to correct myself. Uh, yeah. The since it was a composite endpoint for this, and I always forget this. The uh, the composite endpoint of major bleeding and recurrent VTE was uh, unchanged. Was no difference. With a doxban compared to low molecular weight, there was a non-significant decrease in VTE with um, a doxban. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reached their non-inferiority yeah. margin. Right, which is, uh, yeah. well, let's, let me just point out the upper bound of that margin. That's my favorite thing to do in life. What is the... Yeah, I know. You've been waiting for that. I know. Okay. <laughs> the hazard, the upper bound of the hazard radius is 1.36. Okay. So what is the margin? Let me pull it up. 
Ah, uh, the margin, the upper bound of the margin was a hazard ratio of 1.5, and they got an upper bound hazard ratio of 1.36. See, you know, m- margins on non-inferiority studies, they're like parallel parking spaces. You know, I lived in Chicago for many years. I can parallel park uh, a 19-foot car in 19.5 feet, you know? I, I, got, I got good at that. Um, but, you know, I like a parallel parking space the size of a school bus, and that is what a hazard ratio of 1.5 is. It's the parallel parking space the size of a school bus, my friend. Mm. Man, did you think of that ahead of time, or was that just like I've been working? I've been workshopping that. So yeah, it was, that... it was easy to back that this trial in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was easy to back this trial There's in. There's no yeah. way that you came up with that on the fly. <laughs> yeah, I've been workshopping workshopping that. Yeah. So okay, so that's the Adoxaban study. So what are the other two studies? One of which that I don't know, apparently, well, because I only think there's two. There are two published trials. So the Doxaban trial is big news, made in the New England Journal. And then uh, there's a trial from Riberoxaban yeah. called Select D. Select D, right. That was in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Mm-hmm. And the um, the last kid off the school bus was uh, a Pixaban. That was the Adam VTE trial. And that was published in uh, the Journal of Thrombosis Hemostasis. Oh, Adam VTE is published in the Journal of Thrombosis, Hemostasis. And you probably heard yeah. it was a, a late bri- oh, abstract. Late bri- ash. Yeah, it was an abstract ash last year, and yeah. it was just published almost a year later. So what's going on? Why did it come in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis? Well, you know, I've um, we recently uh, we've talked about this a lot, and I've asked a lot of people what they think of this because you know the Adam VTE trial. Again, cutting ahead a little bit. Yeah, let's talk. Was about perhaps it. the most impressive as far as their results. So, mm-hmm. you know, noteworthy in their results is that they had zero major bleeds in the Apixaban arm. Zero. It was also a, rel- mm, a relatively small trial. I think it was the fewer fewest patients uh, of all of these. Yeah, I know. What's going on? 300 person randomized control trial. 150 per arm. Yeah. It's 500 per arm in Adoxaban. And I think. Yeah, that is true. So, this must be superiority powered because you don't get much non inferiority power with this. Well, I think the so the the thinking is that there's actually another trial with a Pixaban currently enrolling. It's yeah, called Caravaggio. It was, sorry, it was powered to show you a lower rate of major bleeding. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, okay. So it was powered for a reduction in major bleeding. Okay, you're you're talking about Caravaggio. Go back to your point. So that one, it's going to be a far larger study with more more patients recruited. Um, and I think everyone, people I've asked, uh, again, around the interview trail, have mm-hmm. said they're kind of waiting for that one because they don't really necessarily believe or want to place too much stock in what is reported in Adam VTE. This is a massive reduction. I mean, a VTE yeah. recurrence goes from like eight percentage points to like one percentage point. Right. Major bleeding is absent. Uh, you got 140 people per and change per arm. It looked like a win. I mean, it looked I think like we, a win. We yeah. all want a Pixaban. I mean, we. I mean, this is how, this is my practice. Yeah, know? we favor a Pixaban. I mean, there's enough post marketing data on a Pixaban versus Riveroxaban. The other ones that a Pixaban seems like it is the most effective and the least bleeding risk. But this I see. Is did all... you say post marketing data or post marketing marketing? <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, observational studies that. We're not funded by a Pixaban that I'm aware of. Where they? How do we rebrand? The, how do we yeah. rebrand that one? You said your retrospective studies became yeah, he, uh, real uh, world. real world evidence. Re- so post marketing is also real yeah, world. Okay. There's some real world <laughs> evidence where they compare all the DOACs and they're really looking at you know, the the studies are more focused on bleeding. And these are giant registry um, trials where they took Medicaid data, people prescribed each DOAC, and looked at their rates of admissions for bleeding and stuff. And Apexivan always pulls out as the safest, and mm-hmm. it seems also to be the most effective. And it's probably because they chose to make it a twice-a-day drug. Riveroxaban, you get a 
a big dose of anticoagulant once a day, but mm-hmm. you have a high peak and a low trough. Yeah. So now let's talk about the rifaroxaban study, the JCO paper, Select D. Yeah. Well, Select D was interesting because uh, this is the one where they they sort of really showed that if you have an upper GI cancer, your rate of um, bleeding uh, might be notable compared to Lovenox. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just like Edoxaban, uh, there was a higher rate of uh, clinically relevant bleeding than the than the low molecular weight heparin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the major bleeds. It, I mean, it had a very similar pattern yeah. uh, to uh, the Edoxaban trial. Uh, in fact, if I recall, Sven, you'll have to help me out here. Did they not pull people, did they not amend the study to, to remove upper GI cancers? Well, they didn't recruit any more people with it. Um, yeah. After the their, initial signal. The data dosing. safety monitoring committee uh, kind of ruled that that was going to be a, a, pro, a amendment to the protocol, yeah. But that wasn't observed in Hukusai. Well, I think that the the GI, the GI, uh, uh, those patients preferentially had more bleeding even there. Yeah, the so-called luminal GI cancers. I don't know. I've heard different theories about this. They say that maybe there's something really in the coating of the pill, or I guess the pill is just like rubbing against this bleeding cancer as they digest it. Mm. Who knows, but. Or that it's a nice nidus for bleeding or something like that. Yeah. All right, so has that has that played into your practice? Are you more r- reluctant to use DOAX in, in this population? You know, I, I, guess, t- yeah. I talked to um, one of our oncology attendings who sees purely GI cancers mm-hmm. and um, her answer was this her experience is the same as mine so if patients really favor the pill so much over the injection mm-hmm. that they're willing to tolerate even if you have just shared decision making mm-hmm. I once had a patient told me uh, they would rather um, have another clot than have to keep doing their Lovenox shots well yeah I mean I yeah. think a lot of people uh, complain of the discomfort but the, the person who wrote to us this is a practicing hematologist I believe from France and this person was saying in their experience that people didn't mind uh, Lovenox injections yeah. that much Although, I mean in I'll, one of the yeah. in the in the Hokusai trial I believe they reported I can't believe, remember it's that or the select D the rate of sort of discontinuation of the low molecular weight was like 15%, and the rate of discontinuation of the DOAC was far lower. And that's like a pretty high number, and I think that also... Yeah. That speaks to tolerability. Yeah. Yeah, discontinuation yeah. speaks to tolerability. I mean, certainly I have patients who are on parenteral anticoagulant because it's the only thing that works for them. Now, let me term. ask you this. You have a patient, of course, who you've been anticoagulant for DBT and cancer-related thrombus. Uh, now they're presenting with a bleeding episode. Are you going to switch them to low molecular heparin? Um, well, yeah, that came up recently. Uh-huh, um, and yes. we you know, looked at this this patient who had been in that situation and been on uh, the DOAC and uh-huh. had a GI cancer. Mm-hmm. And it's hard then to see that and be like, see, I told you so. Look, the, it reflects the real data that they bled more, but they may have just had the same exact thing happen with low molecular weight. Correct, right, yeah. yeah. So um, so what's your general practice in these kinds of situations? I think that I would still, I mean, in the, the rate of bleeding in these people, especially with upper GI cancers, I think it's higher enough with a DOAC that I would probably strongly caution against it if they had, let's say, an esophageal cancer sure. that was still hadn't been resected and it was metastatic, sure. and intraluminal. And they had a bleeding episode, then you might say, let's try some Lovenox. And if that bleeds still, then maybe let's just say, yeah. let's maybe hold off on anticoagulation depending after a long, yeah. honest discussion about risks and benefits. And if they hadn't yet had a bleed, but they had clotted and they need to have something started from the get-go, I'd probably still advise them against using a DOAC. Now, I, I want to yeah. clarify one thing. In any of these three trials, what, uh, did screened clot get be included in the composite primary endpoint? Not in the treatment trials. Not in the treatment trials. No, but in the prophylactic trials. Which we're coming yeah. to. Oh, God. Screened clot. 
Boy, I don't like screen clot. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, what was the first trial I ever read with a screen clot? It came out many years ago. Um, so It wasn't prophylaxis in cancer, it was something else. Gen- the medical prophylaxis trials that sort of yeah. led to yeah. the it, whole culture around hospitalized medical patients getting injections included screen, screen clots. clots. I think that's where yeah. I was first, first combated with it. I think yeah. screen for clots... I mean, let's just talk about it now. So what we're talking about is sometimes in the primary endpoint, um, the protocol calls to put an ultrasound on somebody who is not complaining of swelling or pain or tenderness in in the limbs to look for a clot, even if it's not uh, clinically apparent. And to my mind, that is a non-standard move. I mean, I think that's the part that we all agree. It is non-standard. We don't do that in the hospital. Yeah. And I think... Like every non-standard move, we're going to talk in a future episode of this podcast with uh, Mark Friedberg. We talk about the non-standard blood pressure reduction in Sprint. Um, so that's a non-standard move. Uh, the non-standard crossover in Cipollucil T was discussed on this podcast. Non-standard moves really muddy the water. Because what you're going to do is you're going to find more clot than you otherwise would. You're going to anticoagulate people you otherwise wouldn't. Some of those people are going to suffer the risks of anticoagulation. Um, and whether or not they benefit commensurately from anticoagulation to people with um, clinically apparent clot is a big mystery. That's never been proven. Um, and, uh, and you gain ability to have power to detect this difference. Yeah. I see. You try laser. Right. You, well, you gain events, right? Maybe those events are, uh, and they're neither here nor there, Mm -hmm. but they are events nonetheless. Well, you bring up a good point. We don't know the natural history of screen clots. We don't. Populations. You don't know what percent of them develop symptoms or would just disappear on their own. And once you find a screen clot, I think it will take a rare person to not anticoagulate. I think you're medically obligated. Yeah. You're cancer especially. Of course. And once you're anticoagulating, then what you're increasing increasing their bleeding risk. You don't know if you're making them live better or longer. Mm-hmm. It's a bit, I think it's a big problem. Yeah. So let's shift. Let's talk about the prophylactic trials. Okay. There are two yeah. that uh, hit the New England Journal. One is for Pixaban. That was a vert, which in my opinion was the better done study. And then there's one for Rivaroxaban called Cassini, which I actually recruited patients to at our VA here in Portland. Hashtag COI. Yeah. <laughs> I received no money for that. <laughs> oh yeah. As far as I know, you yeah. were uh, you were the investigator on that trial, the local uh, investigator. Uh, as was, a fellow, was it not? It was a, I was a co-investigator with David Calverly, who's a who's a hematologist at our Portland VA. Yeah. Is he a classical hematologist? He is, yeah. Oh good. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So, um and and uh and is Cassini the Corona the Corona paper? Well, yes. both of these papers, to give you some structure, yeah. these included patients who, with cancer who were high risk. So they had to have a Corona score of two or higher. And you're saying they do not yet have VTE, but they're at high risk of VTE based yeah. on something called Corona score. That is correct. All right. And uh, these are patients who, um, who uh, were going, undergoing some treatment. And the Cassini trial uh, did include screen clots. Um, ultimately, it was negative. Uh, the apixaban trial did not routinely screen for asymptomatic clots, and it was positive. Um, it didn't screen uh, uh, as an endpoint of the study. Yeah, yeah. the rivaroxaban trial patients had, these patients just went in for, like patients with no symptoms went in for uh, ultrasound to look for asymptomatic thrombus. Let me pull up a vert one second. Yeah. Can you, now, Joe, can you remind me, what was the, like, absolute risk reduction? With AVERT? Yeah, yeah. Um, so AVERT had uh, 563 patients ultimately included in their intention to treat, and uh, 
VTE occurred in 4% in a Pixaban group and 10% in the placebo group. Mm-hmm. So their hazard ratio was 0.4. Now take us through uh, the major bleeding. Well, whenever you do a trial of a blood thinner compared to placebo, you're going to see a bleeding signal. <laughs> so in avert, uh, major bleeding occurred in 3.5% of patients on the Pixaban group and uh, 1.8 in the placebo group. I want you to uh, avert your eyes to figure two and three. You like how, you like how I did that? You like <laughs> That's how I did. cute. Uh, so uh, look at figure two and three. Um, I, I noticed something about those Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, so one, uh, you've got to thank the New England Journal. They've taken the liberty of blowing them up for us because... Yeah. You know, it, it's pretty, pretty tiny. Um, uh, there's that old saying in in uh, uh, the solid tumor oncology that if you can fit a laser pointer between the curves, uh, you can give mm-hmm. the plenary session at the national meeting. Oh, yeah. In a tumor chart, this is a win. That's a win. Yeah. <laughs> now, I see in classical hematology, yeah. uh, you all are trying your very best to have two Kaplan-Meier curves you can't fit a laser pointer between. Yeah. Well, if you blow it up. Yeah, and, and thankfully they've blown up the axis. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know. So what? I guess we could calculate this. So you set us the numbers. Um, uh, there's a number needed to treat and a number needed to harm. And, uh, and those two numbers are not that far apart, but they're both big. Yeah, it, this also kind of falls back on our prior discussion of are those two endpoints equal an equal harm? Yeah. Is a new clot and a major bleed? Of equal risk, and it's hard to parse that out. It's hard to parse that out. I mean, I think, though, absolute differences are small here. Um, Do you uh, believe that uh, that there's a a key? I guess let's just cut to the chase. What what do you take away from this? Do you do this? Well, it's interesting. This is not – these trials were the first with DOAX, but this idea has been in the oncology literature for a while. There's a lot of studies with prophylactic (coughs) thorbinoxin. My sense is that the activation energy to routinely do this is so high. Um, I mean, you have to counsel your patients on it, start it, watch their um, platelet count and other things while they undergo chemo, hold it if their platelet counts get too low, deal with their bleeding. I think that it, here it has not routinely been adopted. I would say our providers don't really ever offer prophylaxis. Sven? Yeah, I mean, I'm also kind of just influenced by the fact that I've practiced here for the last six years, Mm -hmm. uh, but I've never seen anyone calculate a Corona score. I haven't done it. Another heavy lift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then again, I'll also say that, you know, I haven't seen anyone, including myself, really routinely calculate like a Padua score or uh, one of those, you know, for medical prophylaxis and non-cancer patients. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of scores out there for when to do blood thinners that... I know they're used for research purposes, but I don't see them used routinely in practice. Well, scores are for the guidance of wise men, but the obedience of fools. And uh, it seems sometimes that uh, you can be misled by scores, and sometimes you got to look at the whole clinical picture and things that aren't in the score. But I guess I think, I mean, I think that it's kind of a non-starter, as I think Joe puts it, that, mm. um, you know, there's a therapeutic burden you're adding. Uh, the absolute reduction in VTE is very, very small. The absolute increase in relevant bleeding is, you know, not dissimilar in magnitude. Um, you're anticoagulating people who ask you, why are you anticoagulating this? And and you can't say because I'm treating a clot you have and, you've com- and you're suffering from. You can only say in the hopes that I will be preventing a new clot. Um, and uh, there are logistic challenges, of course, when you're giving cytotoxic chemotherapy on a schedule and there's some people who you don't yet know um, will have thrombocytopenia, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I mean, so- the absolute risk was... Four to ten percent, four versus ten percent of a clot. Um, I mean, a, the Pixaban trial, four point two percent had a thrombosis, and these are 
Symp- right. They include basically symptomatic or an incidental thrombosis, like you were getting a s- image of their cancer and detected yeah. it. I mean, in that trial, that's I, I agree with yeah. you. That's the one that was more eye-opening to me. It's a better and trial. Four to yeah. four versus ten percent is not it's trivial. Not trivial. <laughs> you know. So I, but it's funny because every time you do talk about it, then you say, "Well, would you do it?" Uh, you do kind of hit these barriers mentally where you're like, "Well, yeah." The other thing is we have a negative trial that was, I mean, the uh, the River Oxaban trial, Cassini, they chose to include screened clots. You would assume that increases their power. And yet they still did not um, meet their endpoint uh, of uh, decreased thrombosis in 180 days. So they had uh, 6%, per- 6% in the River Oxaban group had a clot and 8.8% in the placebo group had a clot. And their P was 0.1. What I don't understand about the Apixaban study is they write venous thromboembolism was defined as symptomatic or incidentally detected proximal DVT. That's, uh, I think that's... Based on uh, CT for CT staging. staging. Yeah. yeah. So they point out that they did not, there were no... Um, no There's no routine ultrasound. Routine screening ultrasound. So you'd catch like a, Cassini. you'd catch yeah. like an ilio, uh, iliac vein or IVC or something yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the things that that will mean is that it will be interesting to know... Oh, shoot. I can't tell you because uh, we have a paper that we're working on on this topic. And well. I can't blow it on the podcast. All right. All right. Well, I'll leave that for another yeah. day. Um, okay. So so here we are. I think um, I, uh, prophylaxis, I'm going to give my thumbs down. I, I don't routinely recommend it. If you did do it, I would use a Pixaban over a Roxban, obviously. But then again, you just told me repeatedly that you're going to use a Pixaban in every single situation you're ever going to encounter counter as your first choice DOAC. It, Agreed. The data seems to suggest <laughs> it's the best OAC, mm-hmm. so I have to offer my patients the very best. The very best. <laughs> Unless they really demand a once-a-day drug. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure if, I, if I've if i signed on that train yet, but uh, but I guess uh, I guess we all are, are reluctant for the time for prophylaxis. We will treat. DOAC uh, seems like it's reasonable over low milk weight heparin. Yeah. I think that, you know, if a patient does have a higher risk of bleeding, like uh, unresected, untreated local GI cancers, yeah. uh, and they have VTE, um, and uh, they should be aware of the fact that their risk of major bleeding is higher uh, if they're going to use a DOAC. Um, everyone's major bleeding risk is higher. I mean, it seems on average it's higher if you use a DOAC than you use a low milk white heparin. And all the studies except the Apixaban one. Except the Apixaban one, in yeah. which case its uh, power is limited, and uh, mm-hmm. and the result is uh, uh, so, so amazing that uh, some of us are going to wait for Carvaggio. And I mean, even with like the DOAC versus warfarin trials for non-cancer issues, there was an increased bleeding signal with some of the DOACs over warfarin, and We've known for a while that, you know, menstrual bleeding is actually higher with things like river oxban. So it's it's not unexpected that the DOACs would cause more bleeding even outside of, like, uh, a luminal GI cancer. Well, that's well put. And so this concludes, I think, our second classical hematology chat, the CHC, which hopefully will be a recurring segment now that we have obtained a third microphone, gotta yeah. work on gotta work on that title. <laughs> CHC, that is an acronym, is not. Ca- you, you don't not like CHC? How do you say? It's gotta be something you can actually say. Yeah. All right. Sounds like I'm clearing my throat. All right. Well, you think about that. <laughs> okay. I mean, we, we we went from benign hematology to classical. Now you say it's classic. 
Can we have like the sound of a crackling fire in the background and like you know, yeah. so it's like a fireside chat or something? Yeah, we'll ha- I'll ask Kiana to to pr- just to put that in for yeah. at least the last few minutes. Maybe like a really yeah. soft chat. saxophone in the background. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Just the the <laughs> slow smooth chat. Yeah, elbow patches. Oh yes. <laughs> well, maybe you'll mandate that on your as your dress code on your service. <laughs> yeah. All right. On that positive note, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. <laughs> Pleasure. Let's see ya. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.